This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam, And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. And uh, the topic of discussion today is Sudan, which we only briefly spoke about last week. But there's lots to talk about, obviously. There has been a military coup lots of political maneuverings, um, and of course, we can never leave out the apartheid hand of the apartheid state of uh, Israel to meddle in the affairs of the Sudan. So we'll be talking about that with uh, our guest, El Sadig Al-Sheikh, who's the director of Global Justice Program at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, a Sudanese scholar who'll be talking about... uh, who'll be talking about that. And then afterwards, you did a great interview with Shireen Ahmed, an Egyptian-American actor, woman of color, Arab-American, who's the first one to play Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. And that show is going to be here in San Francisco. And it's very exciting to see, you know, breakthrough artists like that. And a woman of color playing Eliza Doolittle, what could be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> more interesting than that, right? Yes, this is a special treat. So I'm telling our uh, audience to stick around. I mean, first we're gonna we're gonna delve into politics because we've been saying we're gonna talk about Sudan. That's really important. But then the special treat is to listen and watch Shireen Ahmed uh, at her, you know, during her basically right. the opening night at the Orpheum Theater, the 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 play My Fair Lady will be in San Francisco throughout the month of November, then it's moving to San Diego. So we're addressing our audience in the Bay Area. You know, don't don't miss it. That, that's a, a special treat. But first, El Sadiq El Sheikh will talk to us about what's really going on. Really, he, he just needs to educate us about what's going on right. in Sudan. So let's listen to El Sadiq. National and international mediation efforts working to solve Sudan's political crisis are expected to bear fruit in coming days. This is according to the UN Special Envoy, who said this on on Monday. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan toppled Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok's cabinet a week ago and arrested key politicians. Joining us to discuss this and more, Al-Sadiq al-Sheikh. Al-Sadiq Al-Sheikh is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, where he oversees the program's projects on corporate power, food systems, forced migration, inclusiveness index, Islamophobia, and human rights mechanism, and manages the Shahidi Project and Denial Project. Welcome to Arab Talk, Al-Sadiq. Thank you so much, Jamal. Thank you for having me. So the general uh, leading Sudan's coup, uh, Abdel Fattah Burhan, has vowed to usher the country to an elected government. But he appears intent on keeping the military firmly in control. Do you believe that General Burhan will give up power to civilian administration? Absolutely not, unless he faces pressure. But let me let me walk your, your audience through... Uh, what what exactly happened in Sudan? In Sudan, uh, what happened on Monday, October 25th, is a military coup. But, but this time, a military coup perpetrated by 
a, a faction within the transitional government. So for your listeners to understand even more comprehensively, we have to go back a little bit two years. What happened two years uh, prior to that or three years? So in 2018, in December, the Sudanese people uh, went in massive demonstration and civil disobedience and sitting to oust the former dictator Omar, who ruled Sudan for 30 years. During their struggle from December to June, uh, they put a lot of pressure on the, uh, the general in the pinnacle of the armed forces to side with them. And that's what happened in June, uh, sorry, in April 2019. And the inter-negotiation between what it become uh, known as the Transitional Military Council, TMC, with the leadership of Burhan, General Burhan and General Hemeti, and the forces of freedom and change, which is a compromise of 75 uh, political parties, labor union, civil society organization, including youth and women, uh, which in their vast majority represents the Sudanese uh, political, social, and economic landscape. That negotiation led to an agreement signed on uh, August of 2019 and ushered in a transitional uh, government that to lead the country from the dictatorship into uh, a democratic role uh, and, and, and signed by the military council <laughs> and the prime minister Hamdok and, and uh, freedom, uh, sorry, not uh, prime minister. At that time, he wasn't a prime minister signed by freedom and change coalitions. And that dictated that they will have a government and a supreme council. And I can go to more detail about what the difference between the Supreme Council and the government, because there is a difference. Right. Briefly, what's the difference? So the Supreme Council uh, constitute include 11 people, five of them from the military, including uh, General Burhan, and five civilians from the forces of freedom and change, an additional one person elected or selected by both of them. The, the sovereign council operate as the presidency of the country. We are a republic, so it has uh, not, it doesn't have enforceable uh, or executive power, just a symbol of the state. And, and, and the freedom of change will select it, a prime minister, will nominate a prime minister and the prime minister in his or her own will select his own or her own cabinet. And that's what happened. So we have a, a government led by Dr. Abdullah Hamdok and uh, a council operate as a presidency, but have no legislative or uh, executive power. And that's where his General Burhan is. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the United States froze $700 million in direct assistance to Sudan's government uh, in response to the coup, and American officials have been demanding that the Sudanese military immediately release civilian leaders and restore the transitional government. I mean, what's at stake here? Does the United States have a role to play uh, or interest in restoring law and order in Sudan, or just uh, lip service? This is for the first time was a very positive news coming out, not only the, the US administration, 
but indeed from all the international community. So the United Nations Security Council issued a, 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 the same request, return to civilian rule or to return to prior to the uh, October 25th. Uh, the African Union sub, uh, suspended Sudan membership, which is also will block any financial assistance to the country until they return back to uh, civilian government. Uh, the IMF, the World Bank, the government of United States, the 700 you mentioned, 700 millions, but is also the European Union and major leading international human rights organizations. So you could see that they lost a very golden opportunity in terms of the support that uh, will put in the country. And I have to mention this, besides the $700 million that the uh, US government uh, promised to send to Sudan, is also there is 90% of the Sudan external debt, which is $60 billion being promised to be uh, 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 forgiven and restructured. And now, uh, and thus including all the entities I mentioned, they said they are reluctant to do so until the return of the civilian government with the leadership of Hamdok in particular and release all the cabinet member and political detainees uh, and to start the civilian role of the country. Well, that's actually what's going, uh, that's leading to my next question because as you know, uh, you know, there's a major uh, or severe cash shortage in Sudan, uh, as most banks and, and cash machines remain closed after the military coup, about 90% of bankers were taking part in civil disobedience campaign. This is what I've been reading, according to Ibrahim Abdel Rahim, who works at the Workers National Bank in Sudan. So then there is other reports that the general is also well connected, like with some Arab countries. And so there is the question, for example, uh, well, one, we know, uh, I mean, are we going to see a, a total economical collapse in the country? And or do you expect, for example, some Arab uh, rich uh, countries in the Gulf will step in and support the general? So I appreciate this question because it's, it's really found uh, one. Let me let me uh, answer it in two ways. One why the bankers and, and uh, civil servants are, uh, why we have economic or cash shortages. In reality, we don't, but because of the civil disobedience and in general strike, which is an amazing thing, that's now all most of the official state and private sectors are, uh, are operating with extreme minimum personnel. And that will contribute to some uh, economic difficulties. But that's what the Sudanese people chose to do. It's civil disobedience. The Sudanese people tried this so many times and always they had success to force military uh, plotters and military coups actually to listen to them. And the second part of your questions, whether some wealthy uh, Gulf country uh, intervene and providing some financial assistance, in reality, this is one of the reasons why we had the coup, because the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, with the cooperation of Egypt and behind them, the state of Israel, all of them, they suggested that they could fill the financial gap for the military takeover. 
And I here have to be very precise in my language. It's not even the military who take over. It's a transitional military council. Because today we've seen from um, Twitter and Facebook and social media that is blocked in Sudan, but some images came out that a low-ranking officer in the armed services, they rejecting the coup themselves. And they asking uh, uh, the TMC, Transitional Military Council, to release Abdullah Hamdok from his uh, house arrest and to enter negotiation and to return power to the civilians. And I have to remind you here, Jamal, that on October 17, according to the declaration, the constitutional declaration, that agreement I uh, mentioned earlier, the military council supposed to uh, give the, uh, the leadership of the sovereign council, the presidency to the civilians because they run it now for 21 months since August of 2019. And now the turn of the civilians and that's what has happened. So uh, in terms of uh, economic hardship, uh, the Sudanese people facing economic hardship for multiple reasons, but this military coup is add an additional one. And the Sudanese people, when we saw them uh, coming out on, um, on Saturday, a uh, uh, hundred of thousand people said there's a million march uh, that all of them demand. They said, regardless of the economic situation, they still be going to occupy the street till the return of the civilian role. So talking about uh, foreign intervention, I mean, I'm always suspicious of foreign intervention to anything that happens in the Middle East. We saw with the Arab Spring and 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 and, uh, and elsewhere. So this is according to the Israeli Jerusalem Post, uh, and it's quoting Israel's Wala News. It says that an Israeli delegation secretly visited the Sudan, uh, Sudan, uh, Sudan's capital, uh, Khartoum, last week. Uh, the delegation, uh, which reportedly consisted of Mossad representatives, met with Sudanese military personnel, most notably with Mohammed Hamdan the Galu. What role does Israel play in what's going on in Sudan? Well, uh, this is not even uh, a secret news anymore. I mean, uh, in 2020, uh, General Burhan met with a former, at the time, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Netanyahu, in, in Uganda. Uh, and and it wasn't a secret meeting, but it was secret behind the Sudanese people and be behind the civilian government that they uh, they suggested and they declared that they wasn't aware of that meeting. But the meeting, as you might know, through uh, living here in the United States, that uh, during prior to the elections, uh, uh, the administration of Donald Trump put a lot of pressure into the Sudanese government right. to enter a normalization process with the state of Israel and in return, they will uplift Sudan from the list of uh, countries harboring terrorism. So, uh, and that's a real politic. Uh, so the intervention in Sudan, and in particular the intervention of the state of Israel into the African continent is very well documented. 
just a couple months back, uh, the African Union rejected or tabled the, the request of Israel to be a monitoring uh, uh, state for the processes uh, in the African Union. That's so, after, That's after, by the way, uh, a lot of international condemnation and campaign and pressure from South Af- Africa, etc. They decided to do that, but they, they almost let them in. And it's still, it's still stable. It's not finalized. But you ask about what what I make of that. So uh, the Israeli uh, press make also known for us um, a month ago that um, they will prefer General Burhan and General Hamiti, Mohammed Ahmed Tagalu, uh, more so than Prime Minister Hamdok. And, and the reason they gave that he is more willing for normalizing the relationship because Prime Minister Hamdok rejected the idea. He said his government and this transitional government as a whole, military and civilian, they have no right to make that decision. The only people can make that decision is the elected Sudanese parliament, which we don't have now. So they said, therefore, I cannot say yes or no. I, it's not up to me. And it seems the state of Israel with uh, uh, the alliance of United Arab Emirates in particular, they try to circumvent the Sudanese people desire of uh, rejecting any uh, normalization with the state of Israel till to solve the Palestinian questions. We don't have Guam with Israel. Our our problem with Israel is occupying uh, territories. So till they uh, remove themselves from the occupation of 1967, uh, I don't think any Sudanese in their right mind, they would like to enter a relationship with a country that occupy and and colonize other people's land. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I know where uh, the Sudanese people stand uh, when it comes to to, to the issue of uh, of Palestine, and that's why you you just said it. They don't want a parliament because the parliament has to reflect the will of the people, and the will of the people is not to normalize, and then they want to rely on a unitarian uh, decision by one person. So, in your opinion, uh, what's next for Sudan? What do you expect? It's going to happen in the next few days or or months. I mean, where where are we heading to? Uh, I, the the TMC, the Transitional Military Council, headed into a corner. There is no exit for them. They have two options. Option one to go and in bloody massacre campaign against the Sudanese people, which is very difficult to do. The second is to result an an inter-negotiation and giving back the power to the civilian rule. Um, And I'm extremely optimistic for a very particular reason that we've seen the Sudanese people revolted time and again that they're rejecting across the political spectrum. I mean, this is fascinating to see the left, the center, and the right all of them agree on one thing, we want civilian rule, period. There is no other but or any other addition. I myself, for example, I have my own critique against Prime Minister Hamdok government, but I have no illusion whatsoever. This is the path we chosen by our people, and we will follow that path of rule of law, democratization, till we elected our, uh, uh, till we hold our free and fair elections and we return to the civilian rules. 
this is not negotiable. But actually, our people have a very specific demand that not only to return the civilian roles, free all political detainees, but actually to trial, to remove General Burhan and General Hameti from the from the Supreme Council and to trial them because they attempted military coup. So, uh, I mean, briefly, do you think uh, General Burhan will give up power peacefully? Nobody will concede power peacefully unless under pressure, and I think he will. There is five uh, um, uh, proposal for solving this conundrum, uh, and uh, they entertain it. And Burhan himself came out in the national TV. He said, "I would like to to retain back of the Prime Minister Hamdok. He can lead his own government." <laughs> but that, that's the challenge now. Hamdok rejected. He said, "No, you can't be part of it." Al-Sadiq al-Sheikh, thank you for coming and educating us on Arab talk. Thank you so much and looking forward to engage with you in the future. That's the voice in the face of Al-Sadiq al-Sheikh, a Sudanese scholar at UC Berkeley. Um, Jamal, I mean, he broke it down beautifully. And, you know, it's amazing when we talk about Sudan and the complexities there, um, this is not the kind of analysis that we're hearing anywhere in the in the media, mainstream media, or even in the outside media. We don't see this level of detail frequently, so it's really refreshing to hear the Sudanese voice from a Sudanese-American scholar give us some insights into what's happening in the Sudan right now, which turns out to be very complicated as usual. It is very complicated, as as you know, uh, General Ahmed, uh, General Abdel Fattah uh, Al Burhan toppled Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdak uh, a week ago and, and arrested key uh, members of of his his cabinet. And uh, and you know we know it's in the news somewhere. It's not really been discussed in details. It's it has disappeared from cable news networks. You know, especially. Since the past 48 hours, most of the coverage right. was focused on the election uh, right, right here in the United States. And this is ongoing. And there are a lot of players, uh, you know, trying to influence uh, and to really reverse uh, the effect of the coup. But one thing we know for sure, uh, two things. One, the Sudanese uh, citizens, they reject a military rule. That's that's for sure. The other thing is they reject normalization with Israel, which has been forced on them. And and so that will be interesting to see how it will play out. You've been to Sudan, uh, Jess. Uh, what's your impression? Well, I'll tell you, Jamal, I've, I've been to the Sudan. I've spoken with a wide uh, cross-section of Sudanese uh, individuals uh, from academia to activists to folks just trying to survive and take care of their families. And this was one of the most interesting things that that I heard is that the kind of rumblings of normalization with the uh, apartheid state of Israel, I couldn't find a single person who supported that. And when when news of that started to break, that there were some negotiations on, people were very skeptical of that. They thought that this is somehow a backroom deal that didn't, you know, really go along with the will of the people of Sudan. And so, as it turns out, I mean, you know, the people of Sudan were quite quite right about that. 
the the plan to so-called normalize relations with an apartheid state like Israel was done by forcing the Sudan economically and threatening them with economic sanctions not to lift the sanctions unless they, you know, uh, normalized relations with the Israelis. So, of course, that was going to backfire. The people of Sudan, you know, like al-Sadiq said, they do not want military rule, but they understood that the former leader was kind of uh, corrupt, uh, was taking orders, you know, from perhaps Tel Aviv and, and D.C. and other places, but was not really working in the best interests of the people of the Sudan. So I, to tell you the truth, Jamal, I'm not that surprised. What I am surprised about, and I'd like to get your read on it because you've been following the, uh, the, the news um, in the Israeli and the Middle East press, isn't it interesting that the United States asked the Israelis to intervene and asking the, the military leader of Sudan now to change course, to undo the military coup and bring back this, um, this uh, leader that nobody really liked. I thought that was kind of interesting, actually. Do you have any more insight into that? Well, I mean, what, what's more to add than the Israeli Mossad is in and out of Sudan uh, for the exactly. past several months. In fact, they've met with the, uh, with the current elite military leadership there. So it's kind of ironic to see the United States which uh, initially offered to give millions of dollars to Sudan and now it kind of froze uh, what it was supposed to be giving them, not to use its own leverage, but rather to to ask Israel, like in other words, Israel has more leverage on, 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 on Sudan, in Sudan, to ask them to see if they can reverse the outcome of the coup. I mean, that's that's kind of the language. But, yeah, but 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 let me just say, uh, the United States has no standing uh, of any kind of diplomatic weight in the Sudan well, right financial. now. Financial, I sure. mean, Sudan yeah. Sudan uh, economically is 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 in a big mess, so they need the money. Yeah, they they need the money, but as you said, and as this reporting indicated. They don't have the standing to actually go to the military leaders right now and say reverse course. They're relying on the Israelis. And you brought this up last week, and I also think it's important. Like a, two days before the military coup happened in Sudan, the, uh, the, the you know, Feltman from the State Department, the U.S. State Department, happened to be there, you know, trying to continue to work out some sort of diplomatic rapprochement between the United States and the Sudan. And of course, they knew this was coming. He wasn't apprised of the situation. He leaves Sudan. Two days later, there's a coup. So what does that tell you about the Sudan's feeling of trust and uh, trusting the United States to look at their best interests? They obviously don't. But I will tell you, and you are right about this, the people of Sudan do not want military rulers forever. That's for sure. But they also don't want a ruler who's going to act in the best interests of an apartheid state or other actors rather than the people of Sudan. So I, I will look forward to seeing what happens in the future. I mean, they're the, the military government has said that they will hold free and fair elections in the Sudan in 2022. So, you know, time will tell, right? We'll keep an eye on this, uh, just and on this topic, because this is a, uh, we're following on a story that we've discussed last week. 
you know, the uh, Israel declaring six Palestinian NGOs as terrorist organizations, uh, despite condemnation from the United Nations, condemnation from the international community, including uh, members of Congress right here uh, in, in the United States. Well, guess what? So the big story, you know, is there is actually a uh, an investigation uh, by uh, um, uh, an online publication, uh, 972, uh, Local Call and The Intercept. They got hold of a classified Shin Bet dossier as well as hundreds of pages of summaries in Hebrew of Shin Bet and Israeli police interrogations of two Palestinian accountants, which Israel based this, its whole concoction on. Wow. Uh, Saeed, uh, you know, of course, they're, they're you know, we know, you know what happens when you get interrogated by Israel. You're subjected. Well, you get tortured. You get tortured. Yeah, you so, get tortured. So these two guys, Saeed uh, Abdat and, and Amro Hamouda, uh, both men were for uh, a Palestinian organization that was not even listed. <laughs> by Israel, that was not on the list that Gantz, uh, you know, uh, right. Benny right. Gantz, the Israeli defense minister uh, who designated the six prominent Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. And a lot of omissions from their testimony, basically. Uh, they put this concoction, Israel has been working on this for a long time. They took this document, sent it to the European Union, to the Europeans, different countries, which is basically based on, on entirely on Abdats and Hamouda's testimonies under duress, under torture. Uh, and the Europeans refused it. They, they just said, of we're course. not convinced. We are not yeah, convinced. Of course. Because the dossiers contained nine fake receipts issued by the health work by health work committees as well as an audio recording of Hamoud in which he allegedly admits to forging these receipts. But I mean, Jamal, I mean, I, I, I mean, we can speak about this for hours. Yeah, yes. but but hours. It's such a, it's an insult to the Europeans. It's an insult to the intelligence of anybody who understands the dirty games that the Israelis play. But we know, and I know this from my own work, when you torture somebody, you can get them to say anything. And of people course. who are being tortured will say anything to stop the torture. So the fact that these so-called admissions were, were obtained by the Shimbet under torture, everybody should be skeptical about it. But my question and my statement, frankly, is, okay, the Europeans didn't accept it, but the Americans accepted it. I don't, don't think, see the, I think, I don't think, I don't think the Americans accepted it, Jess. Uh, I, I think they're just kind of trying to avoid confrontation with Israel. No one is convinced. I mean, this is according to multiple sources. Israel right. dossier failed to convince European officials that the organizations were indeed linked to either the PFLP or any violent activities. These, as we've talked about last week, these organizations receive funding from the United Nations, from the EU, and from the United States and from Canada. From the USAID, and right. And, 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 you know, they go through extensive vetting right. process. Right. And, and this concoction is just like no one is buying it. And there's a lot of pushback. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but every day, like now, since we spoke about it last week, now we're getting all these 
secret communications by the Shin Bet and Mossad and about what happened during the interrogation. You know, they're just basically building this whole case on two accountants who who are under duress, who didn't work to, to, to in any of these organizations to say, oh yeah, yeah, they're they're funneling money to the PFLP or something like this. It's nonsense. Everybody it knows is, that. It's nonsense. And it's a typical Israeli tactic, Jamal, as you and I know, to beat and torture people into saying things that are not true and then using that information against them. So this is not uh, a new Israeli tactic, but what is new is that it seems like some of these humanitarian and human rights organizations were able to obtain these these secret documents and uh, let it be known. So I guess... What is the saying, Jamal? We have these. We have a new prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Bennett. What is the saying? Old wine in new bottles. It's the same old Israeli politic, the same old apartheid oppressive politic, the same attempt to undermine Palestinian civil society, still using torture, which is banned internationally. And uh, to me, it sounds like the same old apartheid Israel as before. Yeah, because that's the f- last line of defense. They want to silence organization, organizations, uh, in particular human rights organizations, organizations uh, that document and, and, and bear eyewitness to all what's going on on, in, on the ground. And, and, and it, it comes, it's a funny, it comes at a time where all eyes are now on Israel, major recognition by human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem, others, that Israel is an apartheid state, uh, investigations that are undergoing in Canada and elsewhere right. about settler right. organizations who funnel money. So that's kind of like a way to, cre- to create this big smoke and mirror and distraction and say, look, Palestinian society, basically they're saying Palestinian uh, human rights organizations, Palestinian and Palestinian civil society, they practice terrorism. I mean, it's insane, but I think they're, you always say that this is one, uh, they're pushing their luck. They're going too yeah, far. Yeah, well, I, I, I say they're overplaying their hand. Yeah, they're overplaying again, their hand. Yeah, as usual, which is a typical Israeli political tactic. They feel that during this uh, kind of chaotic period in American politics and the destructive uh, American politics that are coming from a lot of different sources. It's a, it's a keen opportunity to continue to attempt to shut down Palestinian civil society and extend the occupation. And by the way, we don't have time to talk about it today because we're going to talk about Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> well, but, I mean, just quickly, the last thing, this also comes at a time when just yesterday the U.S. Commerce Department added the Israeli spyware firms NSO Group and Candiro alongside companies from Russia and Singapore to its entity list for activities contrary to the United States exactly. national security or foreign exactly. policy interests. Hey, hello. How long Wake have up. we been talking about this, about uh, Israel? I, I have one word, one Spy. word, Jamal. Pegasus. Pegasus. Pegasus, Weinstein, Epstein, you name it, these guys. I mean, all of them. I mean, they're, they're all well, over. We'll talk about yeah, it but in more details probably next week as next we week, find but out more. W- one more name, unfortunately, Jamal Khashoggi, who died at the hands of, you know, the this spyware. So anyways, yeah. 
So Eliza Doolittle, Jamal, is Eliza Doolittle a woman of color? That's news to me. Well, just this is a, <laughs> this is a special treat, as I've said early on in the show, to listen and watch the main character. I mean, I think I mean people will find her amazing. Shirin Ahmed, Egyptian American rising star, I would say. Playing this role, uh, I think it's a big deal. Just, I mean, it is a big deal. No, it's a big deal in San it's Francisco, and then it's touring touring the country. You know, of course, for people. I mean, I'm sure a lot of everyone knows what's My Fair Lady. I assume uh, our audience and has, has <laughs> either either watched the play or watched the film. Uh, as you know, iconic uh, actresses Julie Andrews, Andrews and Audrey Hepburn both played Eliza exactly. Little. One on the screen, one in the theater. And now here comes Shireen Ahmed. Let's watch Shireen Ahmed. My Fair Lady is the classical musical based on George Bernard Shaw's stage play Pygmalion. The story was a, has a timeless message about how social identity is established through speech, mannerisms, and other appearances, none of which indicate the value of the person within. It's also a commentary on caste and the assumptions of superiority and inferiority that social standing implies. Although the message is universal, the story takes place in London in 1912 and within English society of that era, Iconic actresses Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn both played Eliza Doolittle to great acclaim. Andrews, when the play debuted on Broadway in 1956, Hepburn in the film version in 1964. On November 2nd, My Fair Lady opened at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Shireen Ahmad will follow in their footsteps as Eliza, but making her own history as the first actress of color to interpret this role. Welcome to Arab Talk, Shireen. Hi, thank you for having me. This must be very exciting and challenging to have the opportunity to portray Eliza from your perspective. Do you have a different insight into the character apart from the way it has traditionally been played? You know, I think I love how you framed that question both exciting and challenging because it is, uh, you know, a bunch of different, um, there's a gray area to how I approach this role. You know, on one hand, Eliza is extremely difficult and challenging to portray um, vocally, physically, um, and also, you know, bringing Eliza's story into 2021, um, surprisingly is not so challenging because Shaw's writing is incredible and still applies today. The issues at hand are still the issues at hand that we face today. Um, however, I think, you know, for me, the, the challenge personally is um, representing my community and carrying the torch, <laughs> for lack of better terms, as being the first woman of color to play Eliza on Broadway. Um, you know, that's a lot of pressure. That's a, a very big uh, responsibility to carry. And at first, I'll admit, it was difficult and um, something 
challenging for me to, to wrap my head around. But as I move forward, I realize it's bigger than me. It's not about me and my performance. It's about the opportunities at hand now and the doors open now and um, more interpretations of the story can be seen, uh, not just by an Arab American, but by as, as many different kinds of people as possible. So, um, you know, I, I carry that with me every day on stage, knowing that now that I'm able to, to open that door, other people in the audience can now step in those shoes. I mean, you, you, you. Obviously, this is very uh, obvious from your answer. But you, you always mention proudly that you are the first woman of color to play this role. Does your Egyptian heritage play a part in how you interpret or choose roles to play? Uh, you know, I'd say in regards to Eliza, Eliza's background informs how I interpret Eliza. And so, yes, there is this, this area where, you know, the actor and the character kind of come into this really interesting mix. And so, yes, Shireen and my background does influence how I portray Eliza. However, in order for me to be um, true to the story, uh, Eliza's ethnicity, race is never referred to in the show, which gives so much opportunity to me as an actor to portray her just just as me. Um, but in terms of other roles and other stories, you know, I, I tend to tread away and tread carefully about how uh, Arab women in particular are portrayed in movies and film and in and, and musical theater. We're connected and we're, we're kind of like sealed into this really tight box. And so I'm interested in breaking out of that box and breaking the stereotypes and doing interesting dynamic characters that don't necessarily lead into those stereotypes that we're, we're stuck to. I was looking into your background and uh, I noticed that you majored in anthropology and, and criminal justice. Uh, however, yes. you must have been passionate about acting all along as well. Uh, are your parents, actors, singers? I mean, what influenced you? It's fascinating. So I don't come from a family of actors or singers or creatives. You know, um, I'd say what influenced me was just the storytelling. I mean, my I do come from a family of storytellers. They're great, you know, sitting around the table and telling stories about our family or past events that happened. And one reason why I went into criminal justice was because I was able to better understand the choices, the difficult choices people had to make and the consequences that came from it. So, you know, I did an internship at the mental health court in Baltimore city. And part of my, my internship there was sitting and listening to these inmates stories for hours from childhood to the moment that I have met them. And I gained so much insight and all of that information I carry with me on the stage. And, um, you know, it's still a passion of mine, of course, but uh, acting and, and singing and storytelling is one way of me being able to um, connect us all together and, and learn from each other, you know, Storytelling is a way of 
learning lessons and uh, figuring out how to survive this wild world that we're in. So uh, I'm very grateful to be able to do that. I mean, do you feel when you're on stage, that's what you're doing? You're actually telling a story? I mean, does this help you from stage fright? I mean, I can't do it. I'll, I'll be frightened to death. You know, Eliza in particular, she's an incredible teacher to me. And I always try to live my life with a growth mindset that I'm a student of the world. And, and Eliza's my teacher at the moment. And so through her, I feel like I can move through that fear easily, more easily than I would have been able to if it was just me. And um, when I when I approach work in that way, I know if I'm learning from this character and from the story, I know the audience is learning from that character and the story. And so, um, yeah, I really do believe that the stories we tell are ways for us to learn. And that's what happens with the best stories. And Shaw, his writing is just so incredible and so layered. The interpretations are, are endless. Um, and so that keeps me discovering every night. Just to clarify to our audience, uh, does the story in this version take place in London as well? It does take place in London. Everything is still the same. Um, you know, we've added some text from Pygmalion, which is really exciting. And I think audiences are going to be really surprised at how current this story is. So when did you decide to really dedicate yourself to acting completely? You said, this is, that's my future. <laughs> you know, I, my story is wild. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. So I was going to school for criminal justice, of course. I graduated in that degree. But during that time, I was doing a lot of community theater. I was singing on the side, you know, I never got paid for my work. It was just a, a passion and a love for me. Um, and after I graduated, I had a conversation with my dad and I said, you know, I have to see if there's something to this. And he gave me his blessing and I, I went to New York um, and I, I did a contract on a cruise ship and I was like, you know, there's something to this. And by the time my fair lady came around, I had just come off of, a contract on the cruise singing as a lead singer. And um, I was in New York for two weeks and there was an open call for my fair lady. And you know, the, the way that the industry works is usually you get an appointment and the open calls are kind of like, you know, it's a cattle call. There are hundreds and hundreds of people that go, well, apparently this cattle call that day was empty. And I thought this was a great opportunity for my work to be seen. So I sang a little bit. I didn't think anything of it because it was my first audition for a Broadway show. I, I didn't think I was going to book this at all. Mm. I went in and got a call back for Bart Shear and Ted Sperling at the Lincoln Center and I booked the show. <laughs> and that was the biggest sign to me that I'm on the right path and this is something that I have to do. So you've performed also in many Broadway musical classics, the the Music Man, West Side Story, The King and I, Phantom of the Opera. Are you more drawn to musical theater or does non-musical drama interest you as well? You know, one thing that I love about musical theater is that when, when we introduce song into a story, there's just a different emotional element that's introduced. It's just, it's a different language that we're using instead of just, you know, speaking um, 
But for me, it's, it doesn't matter the format. It can be in TV. It can be in a movie. It can be in a play, a straight play or a musical, or even in the format of dance. Now I'm not saying that I can dance, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, it's the story at hand for me. And if that includes singing, then wonderful. And if not, then let's find a different way of, of putting forth the emotion that we lost in song in words. So who's your role model? That is a great question. You know, it's fascinating. There are a few role models for me, but one who's not actually in the biz as an actor, Hoda Kutpi who is a, uh, a host on the Today Show. I remember watching her, and she's Egyptian, and just seeing her shine so bright outside of the stereotype of, of an Arab woman. You know, she was just beautifully her. And uh, telling other people's stories and, and connecting people through, through fun and joy, I... I find that so inspiring and I want to lead my life in that way. And I hope that by people coming to see my fair lady or anything, any other project that I'm connected to in the future, that I'm able to spread that as well. Well, I mean, it's definitely a role model, but who's, who's your inspiration like on, on the stage or in theater? Maybe this is, I'm trying to kind of corner you down or actually on the big screen as, as an actor. Who do you look? Who do you look up to? Well, there are a few people. Of course, Meryl Streep. I think Meryl Streep, the way she's able to play such dynamic and different characters, she's never the same person on, on uh, in a movie or in a story, is incredible. I love uh, Jodie Comer. She's amazing from Killing Eve. Um, I'm also obsessed with Audra McDonald. She's a Broadway vet and she literally lays her heart out on the stage eight times a week and her voice is sublime and beautiful. And, um, I want to cultivate my own career in that way, in a way where, you know, in one moment I could play, you know, Eliza Doolittle and in the next, a completely different character. And, uh, so many doors have been opened by Audra, um, and I'm grateful to her as a woman of color, as an actress. Uh, and, and yeah, I think, I think she's one of the biggest role models for me in, on Broadway. These past uh, two years have been very difficult uh, for everyone, and especially performers, actors, etc. Now you're connecting, really reconnecting with the audience do you notice a difference? I mean, I know this is opening night in San Francisco, but you've performed before and you, and after San Francisco, you're going to San Diego and so forth. Have you noticed a difference in, 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 in the audience attitude now that they can come and, and see you live and not just stay at home and watch things on TV or on Zoom? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think, you know, the the privilege to be able to be in the same room with a group of people and experiencing one moment in time, it, it feels like, you know, it, it's the energy is kinetic, like it's electricity. 
And it's unlike anything I've experienced before. It's all, you know, the audience really leads us on stage. We have this relationship between the actors and the audience and, and where the show goes. And the audience just feels so much more like there's, there's so much gratitude between the actors and the audience to be together again. And, you know, I love TV and film, but Netflix can only take so much of my soul. <laughs> Everyone's soul, I think. We feel yeah. like we've been prisoners to Netflix. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And to see live performance again is a gift and it feels very special. And it's interesting because, you know, Bart and the team and the company of My Fair Lady the show was landing differently as well for the audience because of how it, how of all that we've experienced for the eight, over the 18 months, you know? And so we made some changes from tour 1.0 pre pandemic and now, um, and what's really important. And it was a great reminder to us as actors and people in the industry that how do we serve the audience that is walking into the room now? And, and why do they have to hear this story today? So that really took a different direction for us. And, and I really feel like the My Fair Lady we're putting up today is potent. And the audience responds to that in a, in a really, really beautiful electric way. I'd love uh, to ask you to sing one part of one of the classic songs. You don't have to do it uh, from My Fair Lady, Loverly or Without You. Would you oh, like to yeah. do that? Of course, I'll sing a little snippet of uh, Loverly. Okay, that's great. All I want is a room somewhere Far away from the cold night air With one enormous chair Oh, wouldn't it be lovely? Beautiful. You really amazing. Amazing. So to all our audience in San Francisco and the Bay Area, don't miss out on seeing Shireen Ahmad in My Fair Lady at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Tickets are on sale. It's opening night. She's going to be here the entire month. Yes. So the entire month before then, the, ne the next stop's San Diego, and where, where, where else? Because we have also audience online. Where else yeah, are you going? Yeah, we go to San Diego, and then we go to Tempe. Um, yeah, it's, it, we're on the West Coast for a while, so please come out. Shireen, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having me. Wow, Jamal, that's all I got to say. Wow, what an incredible actor what an incredible person and what an incredible breakthrough role for shireen to play this play this role in this play uh, my fair lady and uh, we need to have we need to have everybody who's in the bay area that's our home base obviously even though we we reach globally for arab talk but for those of us who listen to arab talk either on the radio or listen to us via podcast if you're in the bay you need to go see Shireen. Yeah, tickets are still available at the Orpheum Theater. And it's going to be right here, as I said, in San Francisco till the end of the month. And then if you're in San Diego, that's in, in, in December. Way yes, to go, Shireen. We have one important thing to say before 
uh, we yes we go out is that this month it's the end of the year and we're asking our audience to support KPOO 89.5 FM this is our home in San Francisco this is their annual fundraiser so right you need to go listen, to their website and 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 support KPOO yeah listen it's kpoo.com we, people need to know that it's arab talk exists today because of what KPOO did to commit to you and I, uh, gosh, 12, 13 years ago now, Jamal. Longer. and Yeah, much longer. And they've been supporting us for such a long time. We want our listeners and our viewers to just give, to give generously, but to give whatever you can. Go to the website, kpoo.com. You can make a donation online. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows are right there, and we'll speak to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>